Right. We're going to be reading uh, in uh, Romans 14, verses 4 through 8. That's going to be on page 553 in the Blue Bibles in the seat uh, pocket in front of you. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we'd, be, we'd love for you to take that home. And if you know anyone who doesn't have a Bible, um, feel free to bring one uh, for them as well. Uh, all right. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Thus, Thus says God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you humbly, longing to hear your word, longing to be changed by your word, longing to be convicted by your word. And um, God, we pray that you would enable that. Father, you, you enable that in us by keeping us free from distraction. God, keeping us free from self-justification. Keeping us free, Lord, from uh, uh, delivering judgments on other people when our own sin is at issue, Lord God. And so, Father, we pray that, that right now you would meet us here in the preaching of your word, and that we would be very attentive, that we would hear. Lord, we pray especially that you would help me to preach, Lord, that you would help me to preach in a way that that makes your gospel, your word, clear and and enables us to be changed by it, Lord. God, I I stand before this this people um, as a really frail vessel, Lord God. And so, uh, Father, I I cry out to you for your help this morning. And I ask you to be uh, right here with me while I deliver your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So there is a lot of confusion right now, both in the church and in the culture that loves to criticize the church, on the topic of judging others. Now Christians generally, unfortunately, you may have run into this, are regarded as being overly or highly judgmental has anybody ever run into that attitude out there that you know christians are all hypocrites they just judge everyone else um but i want to ask a question this morning um given the parameters of god's word is that true and i also want to ask more importantly are there times when you and i are actually called dare i say commanded to judge and, and and even strictly are there times when we should we should uh say what god has said even even uh, as uncomfortable as it might be for someone even strictly and if so what are the parameters of that judgment now i can sense the tension in the room what's he going to say here is he going to make fun of me this morning maybe but that's not the point Today, 
whenever, you guys have seen this, whenever a Christian voice in the culture calls a behavior or a choice or an attitude or a political position or a worldview of another person into question, no matter what, they're immediately countered by the other person, whether that person is a Christian or not, they're encountered with, they're countered with the words of Jesus. Can you say them? Do not judge, judge not, that you be not judged. How many of you ever heard that? Whether in the culture, you know, you, somebody makes a statement about something that requires discernment in the culture. Ah, hey, hey, can't do that. That's off limits. Judge not that you be not judged. And see, the inference at throwing that verse out there, the inference is that all judgment carries with it a degree of hypocrisy. No one is perfect. All of us would admit that. So none of us can equitably judge another human being. You know, how can the overeater judge the the smoker? If our sins disqualify us from equitably assessing one another, maybe we should just live and let live. But Christ, what I want you to understand, is Christ did not say, judge not that you be not judged, period, next topic. He didn't do that. He had more to say on the issue. Right there in the same verse. In fact, if we look, that's Matthew 7 verse 1. If we look at 7 verse 2, here's what we find. He says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured out to you. Now here is Jesus' beautiful, almost humorous illustration. He says, But do you see, or why do you see, the speck that is in your brother's eye? He's talking about a guy that just has an irritant, a, a, a mote of dust in his eye. He says, Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? Now, you got to admit, Jesus had a sense of humor. That is a funny mental image. A guy walking around with firewood sticking out of his eye um, while complaining about a mote of dust in another guy's eye. Jesus calls it as it is. Verse 5, you hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, what is Jesus speaking of? He is not making a blanket statement saying, do not judge. What he's saying is this. He's speaking of judging each other by the standard of myself. By looking in the mirror and say, this is what goodness looks like. This is what holiness looks like. And if you don't look like this, you're in trouble. It, but I want to clarify this this morning. It is a sin. Everybody say sin. Sometimes we have a lot of trouble calling things sin. But it is a sin to assume that there's some sort of moral superiority that is inherent to myself only to see flaws in my neighbor. It's a sin. And it's a sin to use that false view of myself to size up everybody else. And this is what Christ was addressing in this passage. I love this story, but Henry C. Potter was an Episcopal bishop back in the late 1800s in New York. He was the Episcopal bishop of New York. And once, back in the days of transatlantic sailing, he was going to Europe. He was, he was sailing across the Atlantic to go to Europe. And in those days, if, if you 
weren't the upper echelon of customers on a a transatlantic voyage, you would have a semi-private room, which means you'd show up to the ship and they would say, okay, you're going to sleep in uh, or bunk with this guy. And and they'd pair you up like that just to save money in smaller uh, quarters. And so when he got on this ship, he felt leery of the man who had been assigned to share this semi-private cabin with him uh, by the ship. And so he made his way... Uh, as soon as he got settled, he made his way to the ship's purser's office and he said, Hey, if you guys don't mind, I would like to keep my gold watch and some other valuables in the ship safe because he had deemed that his cabin mate was untrustworthy judging him by his appearance. And the purser, doing his job, gladly accepted the items, put them in the safe, but he told the, the bishop, he said, But you might want to know, bishop, that the other man has just left having had the same opinion about you. Judging others by the standard of ourselves is ultimate folly. It's foolishness. My condescension toward any other person only leaves me vulnerable to the searching eyes of all. Have you found that to be true? Jesus is saying that everyone will be judged by the same standard. Not the standard of Michael or Sherman or Glenn. That's not the standard. We're all going to have a uniform, concrete standard that is more solid than each other's public persona. And all of us will be judged that way. In another place, however, Jesus talks about, you know, Matthew 7, 1, don't judge, lest you be judged. But in another place, Christ says this, John 7, 24, he says, do not judge by appearances, that's what we're talking about, but judge with right judgment. Now, would you raise your hand if this sounds a little bit different than judge not lest you be judged? Raise your hand if that's true. Because here, you know, he says judge not, and here he says, but judge. So there seems like, to me, an indication here that there's a legitimate time and a legitimate method for judging situations and even other people. But what is the right way to judge and what standard do we use for making judgments of others? First, the the, the first thing we got to know when we talk about such a touchy subject as judging is we got to understand that judging is synonymous with thinking. It's synonymous with assessing. It's synonymous with deciding. And that all of us, all of us do it all day, every single day. We are in constant judgment mode and it's not necessarily sinful. Let me illustrate. Some of you prefer SUVs or pickup trucks to Priuses. Amen, pickups and SUV people? Amen, Prius people? Some of you um, prefer winter to summer, especially when it's 110 degrees outside, amen? Some of you, and this is the godly people, prefer tacos to pizza. Some of you, and this is also the godly people, prefer rock music to opera. But we are all, also, all of us, don't give yourself a pass on this, we are all also constantly judging other People constantly, and it's not necessarily a sin. This one's more extroverted than that one. This one has more confidence than that one. This one seems more spiritual. That one seems more worldly. This one seems more honest. That one seems more dishonest. This one seems more wise. This one seems more foolish. This one seems more selfish. This one seems more generous, etc., etc., etc. 
without some level, I want you to think about this, without some level of sound judgment, a job interview would be a randomized nightmare. If you didn't have some level of judgment, you'd never get the right person. And can you imagine picking your spouse that way? Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Wouldn't work too well, would it? While some of us, or while some of our judgments, as I said, can be routine, non-sinful, even protective devices, they can also be, let's not ignore the fact that our judgments can also be expressions of our fallen sinful nature. And there are several criteria upon which we should never judge another human being. We've already mentioned that we should never judge another person based on a perception of our greater spiritual worth, our greater holiness. This is always an illusion. Everybody say illusion. This is always an illusion. It's, it's a sleight of hand. It's smoke and mirrors. And, it, and worse yet, it can lead to self-delusion about why we have the grace that we now enjoy. If I'm thinking, well, I am superior to Kim because I'm more spiritual than Kim. If, I, if that's my attitude then I, I am a misunderstanding how Kim and I both got grace. Amen. We got grace because of Jesus, not because of Kim and I. Amen. Now this isn't to say, obviously, that there aren't people who are more spiritually mature than others. But even when that's the case, those who are the more mature should recognize that, that their maturity is a gift of grace through Christ constantly at work in their sinful lives. And never, it's never, ever, ever rooted in themselves. Believers should be all about, the most mature believers should be all about helping others to grow in grace and never about mocking the shortcomings of another or celebrating their sins or certainly not celebrating their failures. In fact, Paul addresses this, uh, addresses this very directly in Galatians chapter 6 verse 1. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, that means a sin, a failure, a mistake if anyone's caught in a transgression you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness see when when we see our brother or sister fall into sin our attitude isn't to fold our arms and say, i knew that was coming i knew that would i knew they'd be there no our, our attitude is to approach them in gentleness and, and to and to restore them that's the whole attitude and then he gives this one little warning he says keep watch on yourself How many of you know that's really good advice? Lest you too be tempted. And why is this? Once again, human standards are way too subjective. We cannot rely on them. Let me give you two examples of that. Or three, actually. How many of you ever heard of the Gettysburg Address? How many at some point in your your schooling had to memorize the Gettysburg Address? Hold Hold your hand up real high. How many of you would like to come to the mic right now and recite the Gettysburg? I'm just kidding. So the Gettysburg Address was delivered by Lincoln after the Battle of Gettysburg. You all know this in 1865. We have regarded this now as one of the greatest American speeches at all. Some of us put it right up there with the Declaration of Independence. This is, this is an important American uh, you know, uh, statement. But in 1865, the very day... After the Gettysburg Address was delivered, this is how the Chicago Times reported on that speech. And I quote, 
The cheek of every American must tingle with shame that as he reads the silly, flat, and dishwatery utterances of a man who has been, who has to be pointed out to intelligent foreigners as the President of the United States. Burn. Ouch. Think they regret those words now if they were still alive? This speech, as I said, has become so important. Maybe the press was just a little short-sighted on their estimation of that speech. How about this? Six-year-old Thomas Edison. Anybody ever heard of Thomas Edison? Six-year-old Thomas Edison was sent home with a note from his teacher. Parents, moms, you would love this. You'd love to get this note. He was sent home from school, six years old, with a note from his teacher suggesting that his mother remove him from school because he was, and I again quote, too stupid to learn. Thomas Edison, the guy who went to patent uh, over a thousand, almost 1100 inventions, and it's still a record, is the reason we are now sitting here illuminated by artificial light. Thomas Edison, too stupid to learn. Some of you guys, well, that's 1800s. Anybody else? How about Michael Jordan? Did you know that the greatest basketball player ever to hold a basketball, indisputable, was cut from his sophomore team? Completely cut. Did not play his entire sophomore year. Now, how would you like to be the coach that had to tell people, oh yeah, I cut Michael Jordan? How would you like that guy's reputation? If we don't judge others by a human standard, which we're clear we don't, how do we judge when it's necessary to do so? We're going to talk about when it's necessary to do so a lot more next week. But how do we do that? If the standard of me is unreliable, what is the standard? How, what is a more solid basis for assessing situations and assessing people? And I'm going to tell you, it is only the scriptures. Only the scriptures. See, the the scriptures have been given to us by God and they do not change like human opinion. Jesus himself said heaven and earth will pass away. It's guaranteed. But my words will not pass away equally guaranteed. Paul says that the word of God is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Let me remind you, you cannot reprove or correct what you do not judge. You rebuke and you reprove because you have judged it. So when you judge, it must be by the standard of Scripture and not the reflection of your own life. The word that is profitable for reproof and correction, also remember, cuts both ways. So don't think you can just arm up with a scripture or two and go be the policeman for the entire church. I didn't hear a single amen on that. Because everybody's like, oh shoot, I always kind of saw myself as the cop around here. It cuts both ways. If you're wielding the Bible as a weapon against others, and yet you're not submitting to its correction yourself, you are a gravely deceived hypocrite. And it is a sin for you to speak up to anyone at all. I love this quote. I actually think about this quote almost weekly as I'm walking that short distance from that chair to those stairs. This is what John Calvin said. 
He said, if a preacher is not first preaching to himself, better that he falls on the steps of the pulpit and breaks his neck than preach that sermon. Ouch. Paul always tied together the work of preaching and rebuking. Remember, rebuking has to do with judging. He always tied those words together. A great example of this, he told his young protege, protege um, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4.2, he said, preach the word. That's the first instruction. And then he kind of builds on that. He says, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebu- rebuke. Those are the words we saw earlier. And exhort with complete patience and teaching. He tells Titus that the elders of God's church should be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to be able to rebuke those who contradict it. After clearly summarizing the gospel in chapter 2 of Titus, he ends with these words. He says, declare these things. The gospel that he just laid out, he says, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. But so you guys might think, man, you and the elders, Mark, have a tough job. No, hold on. Slow down there, Cochise. I want to tell you how this, how this actually works. Paul places the weight of judgment, right biblical judgment on all of us when he says to the entire Corinthian congregation in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, what do I have with judging outsiders? Is it not those in the church whom you are to judge. Now notice he didn't say, it's not those inside the church I'm to judge. He said, no, no, no. He says, it's those inside the church that you're to judge. God judges those outside. And then he gives them how to, how to do a judgment in this specific situation he's talking about. He says, purge the evil person from among you. When you combine the gentleness that Paul spoke of in, in Galatians and Titus towards those in error uh, with the commitment to holding each other accountable for what God has said in His church. Let me just uh, set your mind at ease. When you combine those things, the gentleness that's required, along with a commitment to speaking up when God's Word speaks up, it, it actually makes p- place for peace and not factions, not divisions, not hypocrisy. Everyone is being held accountable to the same standard. The same standard. And no one is above the Bible. Would we all agree with that? We should always also remember that one day, and don't ever live under the delusion that this is not true, one day every single one of us will be judged by the standard of the word of a perfect judge who always gets it right and never has to apologize to anyone. All of us are going to be judged by this revealed word. All of us. Jesus said to the Pharisees, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. Now I want you to notice something there. He ties two things together. There are many people that are living far outside of the boundaries set by this word, and yet they say, I'm cool with Jesus. I'm cool with Jesus. You know, Jesus, whether they believe he was a great teacher or they think that that he gives them a pass for what he said in his word, notice that he ties two things together. The one who rejects me. So he's saying that it's not enough just to receive him because he says the one who rejects me and does not receive my words. You cannot claim to have received Christ if you reject his word. You can't do it. They are uniquely and forever eternally bound together Following Christ means being obedient 
to this book. The one who rejects me and, my, and, and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken to him will judge him on the last day. Now, people may resist and resent being held accountable to God's word at their church, and they may fly the coop the next, uh, to the next place where they feel unconfronted and a little safer, but they will not escape answering to God for what he has declared in his word. We can only judge by God's word when it's necessary to judge. And we always have to submit to judgment from God's word. And let me tell you something. No surprises here. It's painful at times. It's painful at times. It's painful for the, the, the preacher and the people in the, in the seats. It's, it's painful for everyone to, to submit to judgment from God's word. But it's the pathway Please believe me on this, to true peace, to fellowship with God and others. And it protects this church and every other one as well to submit to God's judgment. But let's be honest, we touched on this a moment ago, that some will use the Bible uh, to judge others strictly. And they'll use weaponized verses, yet they'll ignore their own sin so that their use of God's word becomes not only hypocritical, but also oppressive and divisive. It's not enough, listen to me carefully, it's not enough, no matter what this book says, to be armed with a verse and a mission. Again, I'm God's cop. There's an attitude beyond just, just simply what the Word says, there's an attitude that should accompany right judgment. And that's what the text that Zach read to us this morning spoke about. What should we remember when the occasion comes and it's necessary, the scriptures demand that we make a judgment in a situation or in a person's life? It all began uh, with an indictment. Uh, Paul begins with an indictment against, as I had said earlier, self-appointed spiritual cops. I'm going to clean this place up. He says this, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? That's pretty direct, isn't it? Who are you? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Don't you love the hopefulness of that? Paul doesn't doesn't say, go find a scripture in Leviticus and go get them. He says, hey, there are issues upon which God is the master. You are not the master. And not only does he not need your help or she doesn't need your help, God is able to make them stand. And and should they fall, it's not before you that they fall, it's before their own master that they stand or fall. So first, you got to understand, in order to understand this scripture, you got to understand that the context is, we didn't read through all the context this morning, but the context is what we call disputed matters. Things that people have different opinions on. Things that don't have a biblical warrant or a prohibition one way or the other. Things that people are quick to judge others on based on either their traditions or their preferences. Everybody following me? What I mean by traditions or preferences? This included things in Paul's context like the day of worship. 
You gotta understand that the majority of the believers at the time Paul was preaching were Jewish believers. Jesus was a Jew and the gospel went first to the Jews and many Jews came to, came to the Lord. And because of this, because they were Jewish believers, they said the day to worship was Saturday because God had said in the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath, Shabbat, Saturday. Remember the Saturday. But the Gentile believers said, well, hold on here. The guys that weren't raised Jewish said, hold on here. Sunday is the day. We worship on Sunday because that's the day of Christ's resurrection, the, the, the sealing of a new covenant. And Paul says, interestingly enough, this is a matter of conscience. It's not a matter of law, so don't make it a law. Paul also mentions that some believers understood rightly that an idol was a mere thing, just wood, just stone. It was devoid of true power. So they would feel free to go to the pagan temples to feed their families and buy discounted meat that had been sacrificed idol because they had no concern of any power behind it. They said, hey, this is just, this is just meat. Doesn't matter where it came from, it's just meat. But other believers with very sensitive consciousness understood, consciousness believed that these idols or understood that these idols, though they were just wooden stone, they, pre- they represented demonic powers and they wanted no association with them. And Paul says, get this, it's going to blow some of your minds. Paul said, guess what? Neither one of them are right or wrong. Neither one of them. Paul says that each one of them is, however, obligated to their own conscience. Paul's larger point was that no one could be another Christian's matters, a master rather, in issues that were not addressed directly by Scripture. The Lord was the master of all. You guys are quiet this morning, but let me tell you something to give you a really good reason to say amen. I am not your master. I would be all up in your stuff if I was. And don't don't pat yourself on the back thinking, well, Mark just admitted that he's a big jerk. No, 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 no. You would be all up in mine if you were my master. Well, not one single amen on that. Amen, I don't want you to be my master, Mark, but I'd be a pretty good master for you, let's be honest. The Lord and the Lord alone is the master of all. And he can hold his children accountable. And he can even cause them to stand in the final day. When the, when the scriptures are clear, make no mistake, when these scriptures are clear, Christian people, God's people must speak up. They have to. They're obligated to. But when these scriptures are vague, when these scriptures are silent, Christians that love each other, must be left to their own judgment and conscience. Paul talks about these two issues. He said one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. There's that conscience. They should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, Saturday or Sunday, observes it in honor of the Lord. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying the guy who worships on Saturday isn't doing that in rebellion of God. He's doing it in honor of God. The guy who worships on Sunday instead of Saturday, same thing. 
He does it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, meat offered idols or not offered idols, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the other one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Paul makes it clear that if the person is in a gray area, if they're motivated by honoring the Lord, that we are to leave them alone and allow God to convict them if he so deems it necessary. And let me tell you something, God's good at that. He can get your attention if he needs to get your attention. My hero, you hear me say that every time I mention his name in a sermon, my hero is Charles Spurgeon. It's a pastor in the 1800s in England. The guy was the bomb. He is, sometimes I'll, I'll sit and um, read his sermons, you know, uh, you know, 150-year-old sermons, and Ginger will say, what would you do this morning? I said, well, I had a meeting with my pastor um, because that, that's how I feel so strongly about his influence on my life. But some of you might be surprised to know, if you're not familiar with Spurgeon, that he had a scandalous pleasure in his lifetime. A vice, if you will. A guilty pleasure. And it caused quite a stir in the press of his day. you got to understand, uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon was a mega church pastor when there was no such thing. It was a huge congregation. He had huge influence. His name is always mentioned in the press. And so the press had a field day with this, this issue. And what it was, was that the world's most famous preacher loved to smoke cigars. Loved it. And he would do it every single day, sometimes several cigars a day. And the people of tightly wound Victorian London would write letters to him and they'd confront him literally in the streets to tell him what a reproach to the gospel he was for his pastime. That must have been fun. But how did Charles Spurgeon respond to that? Responding to a scathing tract, I kid you not, a tract was written not about the gospel of Jesus but about Charles Spurgeon's cigar smoking. Responding to a scathing tract, he responded this way in the press. He said, listen to these words carefully, and it's going to make you really uncomfortable, some of you. Spurgeon said, I intend to smoke a good, good uh, I, I'm sorry, I intend to smoke a good cigar to the glory of God before I go to bed tonight. I'm just going to let that sink in for just a second. Take a deep breath. Let me say it one more time. I intend to smoke a good cigar to the glory of God before I go to bed tonight. This is what he says. He says, why a man may think it's a sin to have his, his boots blacked. Well, that means to have his boots polished. He said, well, if he thinks it's a sin, let him give it up and have them whitewashed instead. I wish to say that I am not ashamed of anything, whatever I do, and I don't feel that smoking makes me ashamed. And therefore... I mean to smoke to the glory of God. You can breathe, it's okay. I'm not requiring you to smoke a cigar. You guys can take a break. But wouldn't that be cool to have a smoking section, cigar smokers? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so many, obviously, just as some of you in this room do, disagreed with Spurgeon's position. But he wouldn't allow them to accuse him of sin. Listen carefully. He wouldn't allow them to accuse him of sin if the Bible did not accuse him of sin. The Victorian press or the religious elite of London were not Spurgeon's master. Only God was. He said this, same tract, he said, or same response. He said, if anyone can show me in the Bible the command, thou shalt not smoke. I'm ready to keep it. 
but I haven't found it yet. I find ten commandments, and it's as much as I can do to keep them, and I have no desire to turn them into eleven or twelve. That's a great response. We may not care in this room this morning about particular days of the week, Saturday or Sunday. We may not care, certainly, about eating meat, to offer, uh, eating meat offered to idols. That's never going to come up in our lives. We may not even care about cigar smoking. But is there... Now, this is time to get really reflective on the inside of our hearts. Is there a gray area that bothers you when you see another person that you recognize as a brother or sister in Christ engaging in it. You think, nope, let me help you. How do you feel when you see a brother or sister in Christ vote Democrat or support an organization you don't like? How do you feel when a brother or sister of Christ in Christ votes for Trump, how do you feel? Is that a gray area that you have strong opinions about? That you want to regard as sin in another person's life? Somebody drop a pen. Maybe it's the way they eat or drink, or what they eat or drink. Maybe it's the way they spend their time or their money. Maybe it's the places they tend to go. Maybe it's their mode of worship. They worship with no enthusiasm. They worship with way too much enthusiasm. Maybe it's their interpretation of specific but vague passages. These things, all of these things I just mentioned, understand me, can be sin. They can be. Certainly, no one's going to argue drunkenness is always a sin. We're told in Scripture constantly throughout places like the book of Proverbs, things Jesus said to handle our money wisely. There are certainly places we should not go. There are ways to worship that can literally be unbiblical. And there are right principles attached to the interpretation of Scripture. But without clear biblical warrant, we can only gently discuss our perspectives. The key word there, by the way, if you're taking notes, is gently. We can only gently discuss our perspectives with our brothers and sisters. And here's the, set, here's the catch. Let them do the same with us. While we're allowing the Holy Spirit to do all the convicting if necessary, we discuss, he convicts, that's the rules of the game. And also remember, as you're getting driven up the wall by Spurgeon cigar smoking somebody in this room who does something that you don't like, remember that there are certainly weak spots in your life as well. I promise you that. And if you're not sure, just come and I'll tell you what they are. I keep a list in my desk. No, not really. Just kidding. Totally kidding. And Paul ends this verse with one of the most powerful statements, I think, in all of Scripture about authority. That's what the statement is about. It's about authority. And he says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. Wow. When I get up out of bed in the morning, and get dressed, put on my shoes, walk out the door, I am not doing that 
for my own purposes or even for my own benefit. And when the day comes that God says, enough, and I breathe my last, I will not even die my own death. And if you're a believer, you also need to live to yourself, nor will you one day die to yourself. Powerful statement about the authority of God. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. There are certainly times when we're to speak up. Would you all agree with that? And there are certainly times when we're even to judge sinful behavior, but we are never to judge on the reflection of our own morality code or our preferences or our traditions, but we only judge when necessary on the Word of God. But ultimately, we have to realize that if we have been bought with the blood of Christ, our lives are not our own. We are subject to His will, which is expressed in His Word. We are subject to each other in mutual love and service. So why do I want my life to be lived right? So I can glorify God. You know what the secondary reason is? So I can bless you. The lordship or his lordship of his of our lives, Christ's lordship of our lives extends to our death. I already said that. He knows the number of our days because the Bible says he's written them all in his book. So we can reserve judgment to him in these obscure issues. We should spend rather our time loving and serving and teaching and patience and truth for the benefit of each other. And we should spend our days centering our lives in the will and the pleasure of God. Amen. There is tremendous freedom in knowing that none of us has it all figured out. And once you realize that, you will feel the weight just drop off you. (laughs) Tremendous pleasure freedom in knowing that there's tremendous freedom in knowing that we don't belong to another as his or her servant but together arm in arm we are servants of the most high god and we have to rejoice in the fact that we belong to the lord and we have to constantly and sacrificially conform our lives to whatever pleases him most i just want to pray for you right now and here's what i'm going to pray I hope that the Lord was able to penetrate all of our hearts and speak to us through this this message. And so what I want to pray for you, I want to pray for you to have grace to repent. And what I mean by that, if there may be people in this room, there may be people in your family, there may be people who you work with, who you have been harshly critical of, and judgmental love, unfairly. Because the fact of the matter is, you were only judging them by your own reflection, by your own expectations, and God is calling you to repent today. And the tougher part of that call is there's some of you that need to make a beeline. Don't hesitate, don't stutter step. You need to make a beeline to someone and say, man, I just want to repent to you. I've judged you incredibly harshly. And I want to just ask you to forgive me. And I guarantee you that will deepen your relationship. That's actually happened to me on both directions where I've had to say it to someone, someone said it to me, and it's just deepened our friendship and our relationship. But I also want 
God to give you clarity, to judge or not to judge, for God to give you patience with everyone around you that, quite frankly, it's easier to judge than to be patient with. And He gives both of us, the judger and the judgee, that He gives both of us grace. Because what we need is grace. I need an avalanche of grace to make it through every single day. And I know you're the same. So let me pray for you real quick. And I'm going to ask, as I do pray for you, that you have the guts, the fortitude to look at your life. Confess where you have been harshly judgmental, harshly critical. And ask God to forgive you for that. And then have deeper courage to think of names and remember faces where you need to go and say, I was wrong. And I want to confess my faults to you that I may be healed. So just take a minute. I'm going to be silent for a second. Just take a minute and consider those two thoughts. Heavenly Father, I pray that your goodness... Your patience with us would draw us to repentance right now. God, remind us of all the times that you, without a doubt, had the upper hand in judging. And no one could have accused you of judging by any standard other than your holy word. And yet, Lord, you chose to give us patience. You chose to pour out grace in our life. You chose to draw us to yourself that we might benefit from life and godliness. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to let go of our judgments, let go of our strict analysis of another's life. Oh, God, and cling to you. We need you, Lord. God, I pray that you would just give us clarity of the areas of our life when we're just hypocritically judging others, Lord God. Give us clarity to the areas of our life that demand repentance before someone has to judge us, Lord God. God, give us patience with each other that we would serve each other and love each other and bear one another's burdens and and by doing that we would fulfill the law of Christ. And God, I pray for everyone here, everyone online, that you would give us an abundance of your amazing grace to sustain us and keep us. In Jesus' name, amen. I didn't want to not read a benediction over you, but I want to tell you, usually I read a benediction. I'm going to have you stay seated this morning uh, because we've got one one very quick thing we're going to do after after the benediction. But if you would, go ahead and place your hands in a receiving position, and I'm going to read this benediction over you. I thought it was a great... um, corresponding verse for this morning. It's found in Romans 15, uh, the very next chapter, verses 5 and 6. The Bible says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.